Hello again, and welcome to this fourth Bible study about the Sermon on the Mount, which we're calling Raising the Bar. And Jesus certainly does that today because we're hearing from him that we have to control our passions. The Beatitudes taught us what kind of people we have to be, but then Jesus went on to say we must be salty and lightful in the world and obey God's law and we'll make a difference in the world. But now he says more about God's law. He gives six examples of how we have to look deeper into the law of Moses, deeper than the Pharisees went. They went to the surface of the law. Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. He teaches us to control our passions. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with the brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And then just briefly, from the book of Numbers, chapter 35, anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer, only on the testimony of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. This is the sixth of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. It only ever applied to murder. It didn't apply to soldiers in war, it didn't apply to capital punishment, it didn't apply to manslaughter, it only applied in the social arena between fellow Israelites. One was not to murder another. And the Pharisees were delighted with this one. Ah, he can't get us on this one, they think to themselves. We've never killed anybody, have we? Jesus says, if you're angry with somebody, you've broken the spirit of this law. He says, your words can damage, your words can hurt, your words can destroy life. There is a way to destroy another person by what you say to them. He says, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He probably has in mind there the synagogue courts which ruled in each village or town. He said, if you call somebody raka, you're hurting them. You, raka means empty head, idiot, bird brain, nitwit, cretin, blockhead. He says, if you use a word like that to somebody else, well, again, you might find yourself being judged in the court. But that word raka insults a person's intelligence. But if you call them you fool, you are attacking their character. Now, this word fool, it can be translated as scoundrel, or moron, or you animal, you rat, you pig. 
And he says, if you say, set out to destroy somebody's character with words like that, you're in danger of hell. James, Jesus' brother, in his letter wrote, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. You see, a look can convey the thought, I wish you were dead. Certainly, a nasty word can convey that thought, I wish you were dead. And Jesus says, if you have someone who is angry with you, sort it out, sort it out before coming to the altar in the temple in Jerusalem to worship. If you've annoyed someone or someone has annoyed you, and they've called you an idiot or a cretin or a moron or a scoundrel or a rat, get right with them before you come to worship. Reconcile with them before you worship at the altar. Or for us, we would say, before you sing God's praises in church, be reconciled with this person. Before you take Holy Communion, make peace with this person Seek reconciliation. Jesus doesn't say whether it's deserved or undeserved. Either way, there's bad blood there between you and a brother or a sister. Rectify that before you sing your praise and take your communion. He goes on to say, if you made somebody so angry they're taking you to court, then uh, sort it out before you get to the court. He's not talking here about a brother and sister. He's talking here about an adversary or an enemy. He's saying your broken relationship may not end up in a murder, but it may end up with you in court, in prison, or paying a fine. Have you ever noticed that anger is only one letter removed from the word danger? He who flies off in a rage always makes a bad landing. Remember the Beatitudes. Meek people, merciful people, Peacemaking people don't nurse or harbour grudges. They don't let anger fester within inside them, leading to destructive language, damaged worship, or insulting remarks which kill somebody inside. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, Love is patient, love is kind. It is not easily angered or it is not easily provoked. Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you think you've got clean hands when it comes to this sixth commandment. You haven't. Your hearts aren't clean. You have angry thoughts inside, thoughts which are not pure. You use aggressive and destructive language. You destroy the value of your worship by avoiding reconciliation with your brothers and sisters and with your enemies. Jesus is saying, don't fly off the handle at other people. Don't nurse angry, aggressive, destructive thoughts. Don't fly at others, either with your fists or with your words. Be patient, kind, loving. Be meek, so that you may inherit the earth. Be merciful, so that you may receive mercy. Be a peacemaker, that you may be called a daughter or a son of God. You shall not murder applies to much more than civil killings. It applies to our relationships, our relationships with others, our thoughts, our words and our acts. So Jesus has raised the bar from this passion, the passion of anger, 
from what you do to what you and say to your mind, to your inner attitude. And in the next section, he does it again. Let me read to you verse 27, chapter 5. You have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In this passage, Jesus raises the bar for our sexual relationships. He raises it from the deed to the thought, from the act to the attitude. Now, you're not children, so I won't be mincing my words. We're all sexual beings. We've all sinned sexually, some in body, some in mind, some in both, me too. But the Pharisee's attitude was one of self-satisfaction, self-righteousness. My record is clean. I'm unblameable. I've never ever done such a thing as that. I'm unblemished in terms of my relationships with the opposite sex. I've kept the seventh commandment perfectly. Remember the Pharisee in the temple prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers like this horrid tax collector. But they'd forgotten Moses' 10th commandment, hadn't they? In the New Living Translation, you must not covet your neighbour's wife or husband. In the message, no lusting after your neighbour's wife or husband. In the contemporary English version, don't want your neighbour's wife or husband. Even Moses was applying the 10th commandment to the 7th commandment. He was applying it from the, to the mind as well as to the body, to what you think as well as to what you do. He was making it something psychological as well as something physical. That great man in the Old Testament called Job, who was being accused of all sorts of sins by his so-called friends, said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. That's not easy, is it? Peter, in his second letter, said, ungodly people have eyes full of adultery. This is powerful stuff. We men certainly know the difference between looking at a beautiful woman appreciatively and looking at her with a lustful thought. And women, I assume that you have a similar problem to face as well. Jesus gets down to brass tacks. He says, if lust is your problem, gouge out your eyes. If lust is your problem, cut off your hand. And in Matthew chapter 18, for good measure, if lust is your problem, cut off your foot and throw it away. Eye gate is the way in to sexual temptation in the mind. Your feet are the things that take you to that quiet place, that dark car park, that remote room where nobody will see what you're getting up to. The hands are the means by which you create and enjoy sexual arousal. Now, Jesus isn't talking literally here 
to say you should self-mutilate. It's a dramatic figure of speech about self-denial. Another one, for example, Jesus said somewhere else, no one can follow me unless they hate their parents, their spouse, their children. What? Hate people? Jesus is telling us to hate people? It's a strong, dramatic figure of speech. Jesus is saying to us in this context, if you have a wandering eye, stop looking. If you have wandering feet, don't go to those dark places. If you have wandering hands, keep them in your pockets. Don't look, don't go, don't touch. Back to the Beatitudes. Those who are pure in heart, they would never engage in their minds lustful, sinful imaginings and fantasies. Those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness to be right with God would never come anywhere near to committing adultery. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, it's not only what you do, it's what you think that counts. And then he said something further. Verse 27, sorry, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. When I read the Bible, I'm always reading from the New International Version, unless I tell you otherwise, as I did earlier in this talk. <coughs> in the Sermon on the Mount, just in chapter 5, six times, Jesus says, um, they used to say to you, but now I'm going to say to you. I tell you. Remember the Old Testament prophets? They used to say, thus says the Lord. Jesus comes in humbly and meekly and says, but I tell you. The Pharisees were teaching you this, but I tell you that. I'm speaking on my own authority. I don't need to appeal to a higher authority. I'm going to tell you what this means. Now, it's not my purpose in this talk to give you an overview of the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage. That would be huge and it would also be controversial and divisive. There are people from many different churches, I hope, <laughs> watching these films. My purpose is to explain this particular bit of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is alluding here back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Because the Pharisees seized upon this passage as an excuse for divorce. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. <clears throat> Moses is saying this. If there's a man who finds something in his wife which is indecent or unacceptable, 
and he gives her a certificate of divorce, writes it out, and sends her packing. And if she marries again, and if she gets divorced again, then the first husband cannot have her back. This is not teaching about divorce. It's a teaching about women's rights. It's saying that a woman who is dismissed by her husband and becomes a divorced woman must have a piece of paper to prove it. There were no marriage certificates in those days. Nothing to prove that she had been lawfully married. So Moses is saying, if you men divorce your wives, you're obliged to give her a certificate, documentary evidence that she has been a lawfully married woman. That's why she's got all these children with her. That's why the gossips in the villages can't look down upon her as if she's been living an immoral life. This stipulation of Moses is for the protection of women. It's not for the exploitation of men to enjoy multiple marriages. But aha, that's exactly how the Pharisees took it. They found that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and they said, whoopee, here's an excuse for divorce. If we find something displeasing about our wives, we can divorce them. Now Hillel was a rabbi who lived when Jesus was a boy and he wrote, if she spoils his dinner with too much salt, he can divorce her. If she goes out in public with her hair uncovered, he can divorce her. If she talks to a man in the street who's not in the family, he can divorce her. Listen to this one. If she speaks disrespectfully about her in-laws, he can divorce her. Rabbi Akiba, who came shortly after the time of Jesus, AD 100, he said, if you find a woman who is more attractive than your wife, then you can divorce her. Bingo! Divorce has become any cause divorce. You can get rid of your wives for any reason. Moses says so. And Jesus says, no. It wasn't written for that reason at all. It was written to protect women. And Jewish men always remarried after divorce because be fruitful and multiply. That was one of the commandments. Jesus says, once you're married, a divorce should be exceptional. And I'm not going to go into the exceptions for the reasons I described earlier. But Jesus is saying here, if there's been immorality on the part of your partner, then possibly a divorce may be available to you. But it should be an exception and not the rule. And if you remarry after a divorce, and you've divorced for the wrong reason, then that is committing adultery. And so will be your new partner. So we should not be examining the Bible uh, like a Pharisee or like an English solicitor looking for some excuse, some little mention somewhere so that we can divorce our wives or our husbands to justify divorce. Not at all. Jesus would say, remember the Beatitudes. If your partner has been erring, be meek towards them. If your partner has committed adultery, be merciful towards him or her. If your partner is making your marriage impossible, try to make peace, be a peacemaker. And in terms of other men and women that you might fancy, remember, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Many of you will know of Kate Garraway. She's an ITV uh, breakfast programme presenter. And her 
husband, Derek Draper, got COVID-19 and he got it in the most aggressive form. He nearly died. He still is unable to walk. He's unable to speak coherently. He needs a wet room for his toileting and he needs to be pushed around by somebody in his wheelchair to get from A to B. And in a programme about this time of trial that she was describing, one of her friends hinted to her and said to her, Kate, this isn't what you signed up for, you know. Now, Kate Garraway didn't accept that. But Jesus would have said, Kate, this is exactly what you signed up for. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, until death separates you. So don't go looking in the Bible for excuses for divorce and remarriage. Go to the Beatitudes. And remember to be merciful and meek and peacemaking and pure in heart. So in this Bible study, we've been seeing Jesus raising the bar with respect to our passions. Firstly, passions relating to anger. The sixth commandment is not only about killing people, it's about anger out of control. It's about what you think. It's about what you say. It's about damaging other people by your attitudes and your words. It's not just murderous acts that break this commandment. It's murderous thoughts. It's your attitudes that count as well as your deeds before God. And then Jesus went on to say that the seventh commandment is not only about the physical act of sex, outside of marriage. It's about the thought life. It's about the imagination. It's about the fantasies of the mind. It's about controlling your eyes, controlling your hands, controlling your feet. Because if you don't control them, then they will lead you into adultery and breaking up your marriage. And the temptation to dump your partner in order to take up with somebody else, well, that shouldn't be a temptation at all. You should dismiss that idea. Divorce should be an ultimate resort, not a first resort. May God give us grace to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness in our minds and purity in our hearts that we may, may never even dream of such acts as these Pharisees were so proud of not having committed themselves. The hymn of Francis Ridley Hamagall says, Take my life, and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands, and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet, and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice, and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips, let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. By the grace of God, may it be so in your heart, in your mind and in mine too. For the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>